Amen. You'll take your hymn books one more time. We'll stand again, 417, face to face with Christ my Savior. 417, we'll do the first and the last verses. 417. On the first. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? Eternal treasure 
Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. If that sounds familiar, hopefully it will be because Brother Josh preached a message a couple Sunday nights ago on David's mighty men, or at least on, on one of them. And I got to looking at that passage, and I'm not going to preach the message again, but I, I, I had some thoughts that I had uh, thought on before on this passage, and they came back to me, and I got interested, and again, I started studying the passage out a little bit more. And you know, Josh mentioned that he liked to read about the mighty men, and I, I know that all of us have, and if you've never read through that passage, boy, uh, take, a, take a few minutes uh, sometime and go read through all the different things about these men, but Josh pointed a couple of them out and how, you know, this guy slew 800, this guy slew 1,000, this guy fought so hard that his hand stuck to the, to the sword, he couldn't let go of it and everything else. Uh, one that Josh didn't point out, though, that I thought was really interesting in verse number 20. can imagine what these guys must have been like, but Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kebziel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. I just say, the Bible talks about these men as lion-like men. You could just imagine what these guys looked like. And, and then, oh, by the way, he went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in the time of snow. In other words, you know, they used to, they used to lay out these, these, um, these traps to catch these lions. And, you know, a lion walked over this thing, fell down into the pit. This guy jumped down in the pit with the lion to slay it and, you know, s slew this lion. I mean, these guys were just, uh, just, just amazing, amazing men. And I can't help but think that David's mighty must, men must have been a whole lot like we are. Uh, you know, if you know anything about these men, a lot of them were just, you know, they were, they were criminals that had escaped justice or they, uh, you know, just were not really accepted by society. And, you know, we have a lot of rough edges. We make a lot of mistakes. And, uh, but beneath it all, I think, I think that most of us want to do right. We have a rough exterior that God's still trying to smooth out. Um, wouldn't it be wonderful to, to describe us in the way that we love God and we're fiercely loyal to him. But that's how these mighty men are described 
uh, when it comes to David. Look what it says there in verse 13. And three of the 30 chief went down, three of David's 30 best men went down, came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in an hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. Now, David had sunk to a pretty low spot. Here he was hiding in the cave of Adullam. A Philistine garrison held Bethlehem, uh, which was his home. I mean, David belonged in Bethlehem. The Philistines did not. And he was not much different from an outlaw at the head of a band of broken men by this point. Now, David knew what his position was, knew where he should be. But here he is, sweltering in a cave in the fierce heat of harvest, and his mind drifts back to Bethlehem. His mind drifts back to the, to the good old days when he had watered his flock at the well by the gate. You remember that David was a shepherd, and most of them watered their sheep in the same place, and they came to that well, and he was at that time free to mingle with the people of his little town that he was from. And I'm sure the memories of his, his boyhood rose up in front of him, and he was just immersed in his past. And the memory of the water of that well just comes back to him, how good that well water was, and how refreshing that water was, and where he was at compared to where he used to be. And he just kind of mutters under his breath. One of those thoughts escapes to his lips, and he lets out what seems almost to be a mumble of a phrase. But he says there in verse 15, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And three of David's mighty men, bound to him by this, this loyal devotion and this unselfish love, heard that, and they were ready to die to win for their chief a moment of gratification. They broke through that lion of the Philistines. They slipped away from Adullam break through the host of the Philistines, the Bible says, and they brought back the water that David had longed for. And when they brought back that water to David, he refused to drink it. These men went at the hazard of their own lives. They very seriously could have died going to get David this drink of water. He considered it the same as their blood because they had risked their lives in going to get it. So he gave a, a maybe what we could call a noble instance of self-denial, and he says, I'm not going to drink that water. He poured that water out before the Lord. Now, there's no evidence in this passage anywhere that David requested them to bring it. They had just gone on their own accord. They, they heard David mumble this under his breath, oh, if I only had a drink of that water. And they gathered together amongst themselves, and they said, let's go get some of that water for David. And they did. And each time I read, read this before, I always thought, what a waste. You know, they, they risked their lives to go get this water, and they bring it back, and David dumps it out on the ground. You know, I think... What did these men even go for? If they went to get this water and they bring it back and all he does is dump it on the ground, to me, if I was one of those three mighty men, I would be upset. We risked our lives for you? We risked our lives to go and bring you this water and you're going to dump it out on the ground? But I suppose, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever gotten a gift from somebody that really meant a lot to you? might not have been worth a whole lot itself. The gift might not have been much of anything, but because of who it came from, it meant a whole lot to you. And, you know, it's something that probably you could get a lot of use out of maybe. I mean, maybe China is a good example of that, you know. China that could be or, or may not be very expensive, but it comes from somebody that you loved. And, you know, normally I'm not a China person, right? I don't, I don't have, you know, we don't have these China cabinets sitting around. Maybe you are. I, I you know, I don't particularly care for the stuff, but, you know, if I got it from somebody that, was, that really meant a lot to me, I would keep it there. And I would, I would, I would put it in a place where it didn't get used very often, not because I, I like it or because it's worth a ton of money, but because of who it came from. And I think that's what we have. This water had become so precious to David to be used to just quench his thirst. And it, it, you know, it, it would almost be like this base self-indulgence for David to just gulp this water down, and that's the end of it. You know, 
God only had the right to receive what these men had risked their lives to obtain. So the Bible says in verse number 16, he poured it out unto the Lord. I started thinking about how closely this should resemble our love for God. And so this morning, I want to bring you a couple thoughts on this idea, bringing God the water. Bringing God the water. Let's pray, and then we'll look at a few things in here this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for this time that we can spend together around your word. Pray that this would be a convicting to our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to have that desire to love you, that desire to do exactly what you want us to do. And God, as we go through some of these thoughts this morning, that you would lead us in the direction that you want us to go. And if a decision needs to be made at the end of this service, that God, you give us the courage to make it, the courage to make the changes that need to be changed, that need to be made in our lives. God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I see is this, and and I'm going to kind of talk about these mighty men and kind of make the comparison. Uh, I'm not trying to put David on the same level as God. David and God are two totally different people, but David has, David was their leader. David was the one that was leading these men. And I think the first thing that we can see about these men is this. They were close enough to hear his voice. They were close enough to hear his voice. Before we talk about these men, I want to, talk, I want to mention what David was going through. And we already talked about it a little bit. But he was, he was in a place where he was away from where he ultimately belonged. Bethlehem was his. And here David longs for the water that could only come from that one place. The water of the well of Bethlehem. And I think the first thing to note was that these men were close enough in proximity to hear their chief talk. You know, and they were able to hear him utter these words. These were men of war. These were men of action, you know. I think normally they could have easily been out sharpening their weapons or out scavenging for food or out trying to, you know, plot to figure out what the enemy was doing and what their next move would be. It's not like David stood up and made this big announcement. Oh, if only I could have a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, you know. It, it, it doesn't, uh, he wasn't making this big announcement like that. He just mumbles it under his breath. Oh, if I could only have a drink of that water. And these three mighty men were close enough to David to hear his voice. He was more shocked than anyone when they actually showed up with that water. But these men were close enough to him that they were able to hear what he said, possibly even under his breath. Now let's apply that to us. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. I think that we often get so busy serving God, so busy doing things for him that we neglect to hear his voice. You know, we are warriors in the army of God. At least that's the way we like to think of ourselves a lot of time. I'm going to go out and conquer the world for Jesus Christ. May I remind you of the story of Mary and Martha? When Jesus came to their house, Martha was busy serving, but Mary was busy listening. Luke chapter 10 and verse 40, but Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And, 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 you know, Martha gets a bad rap a lot of times. You know, oh, Martha, oh, she was busy doing serving. Mary was the one that was doing the right thing. And she was. Mary was doing the right thing. Martha wasn't doing wrong by serving. Somebody had to do it. But Martha comes and she says, God, or Jesus, Mary is just sitting here. I'm trying to do all this work by myself. Can can you just tell her to come and help me do some of this serving? Verse number 41, and Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. You know what that word careful, the Bible says be careful for nothing. You know what that word careful means? It means anxious. Don't be anxious. A lot of people talk today about, oh, I have anxiety. The Bible says don't, and if God says don't, then he's going to give us the power and the ability to not have that anxiety. I know that's that's not a popular thing today when we talk about the ideas of mental, oh, I can't help it, i got to take this medicine and do all that stuff. Not if the Bible says don't have anxiety, don't be, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That's the solution. You know, putting medicine into, these, in, into people to try to carry this anxiety and everything else. The solution is given to us very easily in the Bible. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. You're anxious? Let God know. You have anxiety? Let God know about it. Let him take care of it. Let him deal with it. But he tells Martha, he says, Martha, you're careful and troubled about many things. You're anxious and troubled about all this stuff. 
but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I don't think Jesus was getting on Martha. He wasn't scolding her, but he was just saying, Martha, you're missing the point. There's always time to go make the food. There's always time to go do this. I'm not going to be here forever. Mary's doing the thing that's important. She's sitting here at my feet listening to what I have to say, and I'm not going to take that away from her. When we get so busy, we often fail to listen for God's voice. And by that, I mean this. We skip our Bible reading. We skip our time of prayer. We miss what he has for us in the sermons. We get so busy serving that we miss his voice. Now, you don't have to turn over there unless you'd like to, but 1 Kings chapter 19, and you'll remember this probably, but Elijah had gotten to the point where he felt like he was the only one that was still left serving God. And God said, Elijah, essentially, don't flatter yourself. There's a whole lot of other people that are out there doing the same thing that you're doing. There's, there are few and far between compared to how many people are serving Baal and worshiping these other idols and everything else, but there's a lot of other people doing exactly what you're doing. You're not alone. And he said, verse number 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and, thy, and they seek my life to take it away. In, in other words, Elijah was having a pity party. I'm trying to do all this stuff for God, and I'm trying to be busy for him, and I'm trying to do this and trying to do that, and I'm the only one left serving God, and they're trying to kill me. God says this in verse number 11. He said, go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And that's where God was. Not in all the loud ruckus, not in all the movement, not in everything that was happening, but in that quiet, still, small voice. And that's when God speaks to us the best. When you're sitting in your quiet time, reading your Bible, spending time with God. And when we get busy and miss those things, we miss hearing the voice of God. If you feel yourself drifting away from God, take a few steps back toward him. He wants to be close to you. He wants us to be close to him. If God uttered his desires for you, would you be close enough to hear it? Or have you drifted from him? Because that's what happens with a lot of us a lot of times. We want to be right with God. It's not that, oh, I'm, I'm giving up on all this stuff. I'm just... I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to live in the world. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live. If I asked every one of you to raise your hands in, this, in here this morning, every one of you would probably say, yes, I want to live my life for God. But what happens is we allow the busyness of life to pull us away from that. And we get so busy and so wrapped up in all of these things that we're doing, many of them for God, that we miss that still small voice we're not close enough to him anymore to hear what he has for us to hear. Because here's the truth. In your heart, you know if you're close to God or not. Everybody looking at you on the outside may not know that. You might look like you're closer to God than you've ever been, but you know if you are or not. And if there's a time when you've been closer to God than you are right now, then that means that something's wrong. You've drifted. I heard this story a long time ago. An old husband and wife were, were riding together, and they'd been married for 50 years. And they were driving in their car, and they, they had one of those big bench seats in the front of it, you know, one of those cars that kind of felt like you were riding in a... I, I had a car like that. My first car was a 1991 Ford Crown Victoria. Huge thing. And it felt like you were riding in a boat when you were going down the road, but it had a bench seat in the front. And anyway, this husband and wife had been married for many, many years. They were riding together, and the wife started... You know, kind of just, she was looking out the window on the passenger side, and she said, you know, I remember how it was in the early days of our marriage. You used to put your arm around me, and you used to play with my ear, and you used to talk all close to me in my ear, and I would sit right next to you, and, you know, we just enjoyed our rides. I wonder what's changed. And the husband looked at his wife, and he said, honey, I haven't moved. You know, and that's exactly the way that it is with God with us. 
oh, we used to be so close. God, what's going on? You're not hearing my prayer. You're not answering my prayer. Where are you? And God looks at us and he says, I'm not the one that's moved. It's us. We're the problem. And if there's been a time in your life when you've been closer to God than you are now, then figure out what's wrong. Figure out what you have to do to get back to that relationship with God and back to where he wants you to be. Are you close enough to hear his voice? They were. David's men were close enough to hear his voice, but also they were listening enough to know his desires. Bethlehem was David's city, and he knew how excellent the water was there in Bethlehem. Being near the place where he could almost see Bethlehem, almost, uh, parched with thirst, it was natural for him to wish for some water out of that well. What an example of the longing and the thirst that sometimes force themselves on us when we're away from where we know God wants us to be. You know, that's, there, there's that desire in every Christian that gives us a longing to just be right with God. And that's what I'm saying. I, I think that everybody would say, I, I want to be right with God. I want to be where he wants me to be. Psalm 42 and verse 1, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, the deer, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? A lot of Christians have suppressed that desire for so long that it's, it's not near as strong as it used to be or near as strong as it should be. But that desire, I believe, is there in, in the heart of every Christian. God puts within the heart of every Christian a desire to know him and a desire to love him and a desire to be close to him and a desire to have that relationship with him. But as we move away from God and we suppress that desire and we get farther and farther away from it, we, we move away from what God has for us and we don't know his desires for us anymore. Oh, we might hear, we might be reading our Bible, we might be sitting in church and listening to sermons, but we're not knowing, we don't know what God's desires are because we're not close enough to him to know what his desires are. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, the Beatitudes, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. When you want to be right with God, God wants you to be right with him, and he will fill you with that righteousness. David so longs for what he knows could be his, and his men are close enough that they heard his voice. And not just that they heard his voice, but they knew his desires. Oh, you could hear what God's saying and not do anything about it because you don't really know what God's wanting. You know, these three heroes heard it. They had received no command from David. They broke through the... the the, uh, the company of the Philistines and took some of that water. Could you imagine what must have gone into that? These guys are like ancient Navy SEALs, you know? Uh, they're, they're breaking out. Who knows if they, if they put on all kinds of paint or whatever else, tried to disguise themselves. But this round trip was like 32 miles. It was about a 16-mile trip from where they were at the Cave of Adullam to the Well of Bethlehem and back. And more than likely, they did that in, you know, one day, one night. Go out get this water, and bring it back to David. And they sneak into an area that's just crawling with a fierce enemy. The well was a very protected place. I mean, it's one of those places that you didn't leave unprotected because it was such a valuable source of life, really. Uh, you didn't want somebody poisoning the water or any of those kind of things, so those wells were protected. And yet these three men break in there and get this water. Sure, they had heard what he said, but they not only heard what he said, they were able to discern his desires. They knew they knew by listening to the way that David said that in his voice that he really wanted some of that water from the well of Bethlehem. How many Christians today will sit down and read their Bibles in the morning or sit through a sermon after sermon and are never changed? That's when we hear God's voice, but we're not listening to his desires. It's a perfect example of not being able to discern what he wants for us to do. God can speak all day long, but if we're not carefully listening to what he's saying, then it does us no good. You know, I'm afraid that a lot of Christians go to church because that's what they've always done. A lot, of, a lot of Christians read their Bibles because that's what they've always done and that's what they know they're supposed to do. They sit through the messages because that's what they've always done. They sing the songs and carry their Bibles because that's what they've always done. But that'll only go so far. You can only do it that way for so long before you finally get bored of all of those things. And unless God gets a hold of your heart, you're going you, you, to be gone. You're going to be tired of sitting in church. You're going to be tired of reading in your Bible. You're going to be tired of living as a Christian, and you're just going to give up on all of it. Because if, there's no, if it's nothing but hollow Christianity, it means nothing. It counts for nothing. Why keep living it? Why keep pretending? You know, I, 
You fall further and further from the heart of God until eventually you're not reading your Bible at all. And eventually you're not even going to church at all. And eventually you give up on Christianity and faith and everything else. I'm sure you've, you've heard recently about some of these, I, I guess you could call them high-profile Christians quitting the faith. I, I have a hard time believing that they were actually saved in the first place if you quit the faith. But let's just assume that they were. How do you fall so far away from God that even when you're in public ministry, you give up on your faith? How does that happen? I think it happens exactly the way that I just described it. Part of it has to do with the crowd that they're running with. You know, the, the idea of this, this contemporary style that so closely resembles the world that you don't know where, where Christianity ends and the world starts and that line is so blurred that, you, you know, you could be in a, in a concert, you know, at a rock concert and you could be having a Christian concert going on right next to it and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference until halfway through and you heard the word Jesus in there, right? And look, these rock concerts and, and country music concerts and everything else use Jesus in a lot of their songs too. Just because you say Jesus in a song does not make it something that's pleasing to God. And I think that has a lot to do with it as well, is that they're so closely resembling and so closely mirroring the world that you can't tell where Christianity ends and the world starts. And so when you live that lifestyle of a rock music, you know, rock musician for so long, you get away from all the things that God really has for you and away from all the things that God really wants for you in your life. But the other part is that is you get so wrapped, in ju- wrapped up in just doing, so wrapped up in, uh, in just doing Christianity instead of living Christianity that you fail to have the relationship that God wants to have with you and that he wants us to have with him. And you just get finally get tired of pretending. In fact, that's what one of these guys, I don't know the exact quote. I, I read several of these articles about the, some of these guys that, that left, but that's what several of them said who left the faith. They got tired of being someone they were not. I'm tired of living this lifestyle. This is not who I am. I'm leaving the faith to go be who I was always, always was and always will be. And that's exactly what happens with good Christians. Why do, how does somebody that's in church for 25 years quit? I'll tell you how. Because you get further and further away from God. Oh, you might be reading your Bible. You might be sitting in church. But you're not really listening to what God has for you. You're not reading your Bible with the intention of getting something out of it that God has for you to get out of it. Then eventually, you get tired of faking it. You get tired of pretending. Usually, it starts with quitting your Bible reading because that's what nobody really sees the most. So, well, I'll, I just, whatever, I don't have time for that today. And, and that's usually how it starts. It usually never starts out as an intention. I'm done reading the Bible. It's just, I don't have time. And then you get further away from that, and then you're pretty soon you're not reading your Bible at all. And then, well, I don't have time to go to church today. I'll, I'll go next week. And then pretty soon you aren't in church at all. And, well, I don't have time to be a Christian anymore. I'm done with it. I'm, I'm done pretending. I'm, I, I've been acting for so long about being a Christian. I, I just... Why keep pretending anymore? Let's go move somewhere where nobody knows who we are. Then we don't feel obligated to go to church. I don't feel obligated to pretend I'm a Christian. That's how it happens. And I know that sounds like a far-fetched example, but that's exactly how it happens. We move farther and farther away from God. We lose what his desires are for us, and the next thing you know, we're not in it at all. It's a long, slow, gradual process usually, but it all starts with only hearing God's voice and not actually discerning his desires for us. And we can take that one step further in the last point. They were close enough to hear his voice. They were listening enough to know his desires. And lastly, they loved him enough to fulfill his desires. Turn over to James chapter 1. We won't beat a dead horse, but these men loved David enough to go for that water. Just on the mention of a desire. Boy, if we would love God that way. We hear something in a message, and we know that that's what God desires for us, and we say, boy, that's a big step, but you know what? If that's what God wants for me, I'll do it. I'll do anything for him. I'll, I'll live any way that he wants me to live, as long as he's pleased. That's what these men were doing for David. They weren't trying to earn brownie points. They were already his chief men. They weren't trying to, you know, to, they weren't trying to move up the ranks. They were already at the top. They weren't trying to take David's job. They were, they were working together with David. They knew who their leader was. You know why they did it? Because they loved David, and they were loyal to David. 
He was their men. Or they, they were his men. And they said, we'll do anything for that man. And that's the way it ought to be with us when it comes to God. God, if that's what you want me to do, it's, it's not easy. And I, I might risk losing a lot doing this. But if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. James chapter 1 and verse 20, 22 says this. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Christians are good at hearing, bad at doing most of the time. And God says, don't just listen to it, do it. It doesn't count for anything if all you do is hear it, right? It's the same thing. Like We talked about this a few weeks ago. I used this as an illustration with Pearl Harbor, right? They heard all the alarms going off, and they heard all the sirens. Hey, there's, a, there's an air raid going on. Take cover. Get these things out of there. And everybody thought it was a drill, so nobody did anything. I mean, you could hear it all you want to, and unless you act on it, it doesn't count for anything. And that's the same way that it is when it comes to our spirituality and our Christian lives. We can hear all about it all we want to, but until we actually do something about it, it doesn't count for anything. Scott Pauley is an evangelist. You might have heard his name before. You might have heard him preach before. He's, he's very active. He's probably maybe five, five years older than me, maybe 10 years older. I don't know. He's not that old, but he posted an article this week. And the whole idea behind his article was that he talked about consumer Christianity. I don't know if that was the title. I think that was the title of the article, Consumer Christianity. Uh, American Christianity, which is a far cry from Acts Christianity, the, the Christianity that the early church had, has done a lot to develop the, the idea of consumerism in the minds of Christians. People shop for a church. Where can I be happy? Where can I get into a church that will do the most for me? What can I get out of it? I have a suspicion that when we gather at the judgment seat of Christ, those type of people, the consumers, the American Christian consumers, are going to be so humiliated to stand before the martyrs. We're going to be so humiliated to stand before the lamb that was slain for us. Because all we're worried about is what can I get out of it instead of what can I do for Jesus Christ. John, John F. Kennedy said, uh, um, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what can you do for your country? And that ought to be the same mindset that we have with Christianity. Ask not what Christianity can do for you, but what you can do for Christianity. Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. Ask not what God can do for you, but what can you do for God? That ought to be our mindset. Our mindset ought to be, what can I do for him? Ours is a Christianity of convenience and comfort. We've become consumers the early church didn't have those luxuries. They were depending not on buildings and not on money that was coming in from all these places. They were depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. They wanted that. And they needed that. And they knew they needed it. And they had it. Their fight was with the devil and their fellowship was with God's people. Persecution drove them to God and drove them to one another. But it's all so easy now. We're not persecuted. We don't... We don't have to hide ourselves going to church so that we don't get seen walking into the church building so we don't get shot on our way out the door. It's so easy to be a Christian in America, and I'm telling you, that's why Christianity is so weak in America today. Do you know that it, throughout history, the times when Christianity is the strongest is when persecution is the strongest as well? Because it's not a half-hearted Christianity. I'm not just doing Christianity because that's what everybody else is doing. I'm not just pretending to be a Christian because that's what everybody expects me to be. I'm a Christian because it means something. And if I stand up and say I'm a Christian, there's a good possibility I'm going to get killed for it. You know what that makes you do? That makes you either be nothing of a Christian or 100% of a Christian. That's why persecution. And I'm not begging for it. Trust me, I'm the last one. I, I, when it comes to those kind of things, I hope we stay in America without persecution for 100 years. But if it happened tomorrow, it would be the best thing for us. If Christians started getting killed for being Christians... It would, it, would, it, would, it would drive the fake Christians under the rocks and it would pull the real Christians out. And it would make us decide, am I a Christian or am I not? You see, James warned us against that consumer mentality creeping into our spiritual lives. Look over in James chapter 4, you're probably only a couple pages from that. Verse number 2. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, ye ha yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not. Why? Because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it 
upon your lust. In other words, he's saying you're asking God to bless all of this stuff. You're asking God to do all those things. Why? For yourself. And I'll tell you, selfishness is the death of spirituality. It kills Christianity. It destroys a church. It destroys a Christian. And it misses God's best. Instead of thinking about what can I get out of this church, we ought to be thinking what can I, what can I get, what, what can I contribute to this? And, I, and I'm telling you, contributions are not limited to money. When we start talking about contributing to the church, oh, he's after money again. No, money is a small part of it. Because you know what? God's going to take care of his church. This is his church. This is not ours. This is his church. And if he wants us to be here, and he does, then he'll provide every single penny that we need for him to provide. I'm not worried about money. When it comes to contributions, in fact, t turn over to Luke chapter 6. The greatest contribution are in, the area, are, are, are in the arena of true riches. Prayer. I can pray for this church. And I can do so much more than giving $10 by praying. Encouragement. I can be an encouragement to my pastor. I can be an encouragement to all the other people around me to keep going, to keep serving God. Fellowship, love, kindness. I mean, we can add so many things to that. There's so many things to contribute to a church besides just money. And look, we, we have to have money to, to function. We've got to pay the light bill. We've got to pay for the building and all that stuff. But I'm not worried about those things. God will take care of us with it when it comes to those kind of things. And if God's blessed you with a good job and a lot of money, and you're able to contribute more to those things, then, then God does some, gives some people the gift of giving, the ability to give more than somebody else. But God's not looking at your money and saying, wow, look at all the money he gave to that church. I'm going to bless him. Sometimes he does. But what God is looking for is for ways that we can contribute, that he's given us the ability to contribute. If you can be an encourager, you ought to be an encourager, or you're not giving what you can give to this church. If you can, if, if you can pray, and last I checked, everyone in this room can talk. If you can pray and you're not, then you're not contributing to this church what you can contribute to this church. That's why American Christianity has become a consumer Christianity. What can they do for me? Not what can I do for this church, not what can I do for God, not how can I serve, what can they do for me? Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Give, and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, Shaking together, running over shall men give into your bosom, for with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Oh, what a great verse on giving, right? What a great verse on tithing. What a great verse on giving money to God, except for one thing. It doesn't say anything about money in that verse, does it? It just says give. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Contributions don't just come in the form of money. They come in a whole lot of other ways. And we ought to be contributing to this church. We ought to be contributing to the cause of Jesus Christ. We ought to be contributing to Christianity. And if we're not, then there's something wrong with us. I've never been to the Dead Sea, but I've heard enough about it. For centuries, living things have flowed into it, but nothing ever flows out of the Dead Sea. They say that you can go lay down in the Dead Sea, and without trying at all, you'll float on the top because there's so much salt in the Dead Sea because of all the stuff that's been flowing into it for all of these years, and there's no outlet. There's no way for anything to come out of the Dead Sea. One guide made a tremendous statement. He said this, life becomes death when it's kept to itself. Life becomes death when it's kept to itself. Churches die. Christians died, not because nothing flows into them, but because nothing is flowing out. There's a lot of people that, that, that will use that as the excuse. Well, I just wasn't getting what I needed there, so they leave. No, you're getting what you needed, but nothing's flowing out, and so you're, you're, you're going to die. Life becomes death when it's kept to itself. We have received a lot. It's time to give. It's time to give to others. God never intended us to be Dead Sea Christians in Dead Sea churches. He expected us to get all of this stuff in, know what his desires are for us, and then give it back out. 
And that's what David's men knew. We ought to be consumers. We ought, we ought to be contributors, not consumers. I tell you what, it, it all comes down to your love for God. Because if you love God, you will serve him. And you can say it in a hundred different ways. No, I just, I, I got this going on and this is happening and that's happening. If you love God, you'll serve him. Because look, and I know how it, we, we get so busy. We get so busy doing so many things. You can make time for anything that you want to make time for. Right? If you are going to go meet with the President of the United States, I don't care what's on your schedule. You'll clear it and you'll be there. Right? And the same thing is true when it comes to serving God with whatever. I mean, not everybody can be at everything. We can't. We can't. Because we would drive ourselves crazy. But we can all be at something. We can all be involved in something. And I'm so encouraged to see so many of you get involved in a lot of these ministries that we're trying to do. It's great. And that's what we're trying to move into. But what you ought to be asking yourself is, what else can I do? How else can I serve God? You're not doing it for me. You're not doing it for the people around you. You're doing it for God. You can't take your riches with you when you go, can you? Anybody ever seen a U-Haul behind a hearse? Brother Matt, have you ever, have you ever uh, moved somebody that was already dead? Because you can't. Take it with you when you go, can you? You can have all the money in the world. You can have all the things in the world. You can't take it with you when you go. But I tell you this, you can pass it on ahead. And how do you pass it on ahead? By serving God. Because the more you serve him, the more you're building up rewards in heaven. And that's what David's men understood about him. We love that guy. We'll do anything for him. Oh, if I could just have some water from Bethlehem. Did you guys hear that? He said, if you could just get some water from, let, let, let's get a little, let's go. Let's go see what we can do. We can, we can break through the line of the Philistines. We can, we can get some of that water and bring it back. That would be a great surprise for David. I mean, I, I, I love him enough to do it, don't you? Yeah, but, you know, it, it, we might die. Yeah, but, I mean, it's David. Well, it's true, it is David. All right, let's go. Let's go get the water for David. And they go and they get that water and they bring it back and they give that water to David. And David was so moved. By what they did. And I'm telling, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll be done. I'm not trying to compare David to God. I'm not putting them on the same level. But there's a lot of similarities in the story with the way that David's men responded to him and the way that we should be responding to God. David's heart was touched at the thought of what they had risked. And I'm telling you, I can, I can just imagine that David wanted to drink that water so badly but he knew what those men had risked to go get that water for him. He knew what it meant. If they'd been caught, they would have been killed. They'd been dead. All over some water that he just mumbled under his breath that he thought he would like to have. I can imagine that these three men felt pretty highly repaid for their devotion as David poured that water out before the Lord. David didn't just say, eh, dump it on the ground. It was more than that. David said, there's only one person that's worthy of this water, and that's the Lord. He dumped that water out before the Lord. That reminds me of a passage in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 13. You know Hebrews chapter 11 as the faith chapter. In faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. All of these different people. And it says in verse number 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to, be, to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. You know what those verses are saying? It used to be that they had their minds on the earth. And if they had gone back, they probably could have taken those cities back over. But that's not what they're looking for anymore. They're looking for a heavenly city. They're looking towards eternity. And you know what? God's not ashamed to be called their God. I think if we were to put that into some colloquial terms, and I'm not trying to sound disrespectful, but it's almost as if God's saying, that's my boy. He's one of mine. 
I'm not ashamed to be called his God. He's looking at the right things. He's looking for those heavenly things. That to me is equivalent of David taking that water, pouring it out before the Lord. God's heart is moved by the service of his people. When we serve God, that moves God's heart. God's pleased when we give everything that we have to him. Are you close enough to God to hear his voice? But even more than that, are you listening enough to know his desires? And even more than that, do you love him enough that you're willing to do whatever it is that he tells us he wants us to do? Do you love him enough to fulfill his desires? If not, then we need to examine ourselves, see where we are, see what needs to change and change it so that we will be close enough to God to hear his voice and close enough to him so that we can listen to his desires and close enough to him and love him enough that we'll be willing to do whatever he says that he wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, we love you again. We thank you so much for how good you are to us. I know we're a little long this morning. But God, I believe this is a message that you've laid on my heart for all of us. Every one of us need this message this morning, myself included. I want to be close to you, God. I want you to be proud of me. I want you to be pleased with me. I want to serve you. And I know that that's what everybody in this room would say this morning, but God... We need to move ourselves into that position so that we're close enough to hear your voice, close enough to know your desires, close enough and love you enough to be willing to go and fulfill those desires. God, because we're human, we fall so woefully short so many times. So God, I pray that you'd help us to take the steps that are necessary, do what we need to do to get back to where you want us to be so that we can be useful in your service. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Enough has been said. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart as the piano plays, the invitation is open and you can come.